Good morning. This morning, uh, I am a, the pinch hitter. I had to ask ever if that was the right baseball terminology. Uh, I'm the pinch hitter today, the substitute teacher, so that always goes over well. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. We'll pray and we'll get started. We are in James uh, chapter 1 still. And we'll be reading 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, by your Spirit, have the power, as we just sang, to overcome our unbelief. And so, God, I beg you that this morning, by your word, you have orchestrated for this body, you would overcome our unbelief. We believe, but help our unbelief. So help us to trust you through this text, through your Spirit working in us. God, help us to submit to that spirit as he is wooing us to obedience, to greater trust and faith in you through the difficulties that we are presently consumed with. God, we need you. We need your word this morning. And we praise you that you have ordained uh, the preaching of your word uh, through mere vessels by the power of your spirit uh, to be uh, our food to be a means by which we worship our God and Savior. So thank you, Lord, for your gift of grace to us in the gospel and the written word that we have this morning. Speak, O Lord, overcome our unbelief as we study your word this morning. We pray this in the glorious name of Christ. Amen. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. This is old wives' tale, or uh, we would probably more be more proper to call it an English proverb uh, that we often quote. Um, we hear lots of English proverbs that we might not know are called English proverbs. We just think they're quotes or cliches. The Chinese proverbs usually come in a little cookie, but the English ones just come by people that we think um, they always repeat these same phrases. They have nothing else better to say. Uh, Sometimes they make us sound smart, especially if we know the origin of the phrase. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Do you know where that originated from? Well, two websites that I looked up, uh, which will remain (laughs) Wikinonymous, state, the first one states that it originated in the 1900s as a marketing slogan dreamt up by American growers who were concerned that the temperance movement would cut into the sales of apple cider. The other website um, said it's a Pembrokeshire proverb and basically is the same as eat an apple on going to bed and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread. Whatever the meaning is or the origin, we all kind of understand what it's getting at. Most of these proverbs end up on magnets or 
quotes in your yearly planners or motivational posters or a coffee mug. And here's a few more that maybe some of you know and probably will finish for me. A stitch in time saves nine. I did not know what that meant until we were talking on Thursday. I don't even know if I had heard that one before. I'm locked in a cave too much. If you can't beat them, join them. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish and you feed him for a lifetime. The early bird gets the worm. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. You guys are... Is this not in your zip code? (laughs) A loaded wagon makes no noise. That might be a different one. Loose lips sink ships. A bird in the hand... We're two in the bush. And my personal favorite, I used to have a t-shirt with this phrase on there. See, I told you, end up in that t-shirt. A rolling stone gathers no moss. Well, to cut to the chase, so that all of you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, I mention these Proverbs because we actually have one in our text this morning. And you probably caught it. It seemed very much like uh, the book of Proverbs. But we have one here. We stated uh, earlier that James is very similar to Old Testament wisdom literature uh, because of his very practical nature in writing. Uh, However, unlike the English Proverbs, James is also very helpful in that he's going to give us a commentary on his proverb for us this morning. It's likely that James's proverb Uh, which appears in verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's it's likely that this is a well-known proverb in his day. Could even have uh, non-Christian origin. Just something that is a wise saying. Good for relationships, maybe. And that would make it very similar to our English proverbs, uh, except for the minor fact that James's proverb is inscripturated. Minor fact. Is that a word? I, I made it up. I think that James has two main ideas for us from this text. So in verses 19 through 21, he has the proverb in 19 and then the commentary running after. Two main ideas I think that James is wanting the reader to get. First is that anger breeds death. Strange to get from this. Anger breeds death. I think we'll see that clear. And the word is life. So this morning, that's the two main thoughts we're going to look at, is anger breeds death and the word is life. I think that is on the back of your bulletin. James seems to me to have stayed on topic with trials coming into this text. Now, if you have a Bible that gives you paragraph headings, you probably notice that it broke and it gave a new bolded heading on top of verse 19. says, hearing and doing the word. Now, that is accurate. For sure. But I think that this also, when we think of anger um, and being quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, when is the most applicable time of that in our life but when we're in the midst of a fiery trial? We don't often struggle with uh, being too quick to speak and not watching what we say when everything seems to be hunky-dory. But usually in the midst of a trial is when we are quick to be angry or we struggle with this proverb. 
So I think that maybe James is still having us in this uh, context of trials. And, but for me, he's using this as a transition into the next topic, which is, as your Bible probably says, hearing and doing the word. So I think also that this text, 19 through 21, is very similar to verses 16 through 18, in that both of them are going to begin with an imperative verb. Uh, 16, don't be deceived. 19, uh, know this. They both uh, are talking to my beloved brothers. And then they both passages end with uh, some sort of a redemption by God's word. So I think that also ties it in with the topic of trials. Sorry to bore you with structure. But I think it's helpful for us as we look to see what is the context is, that this is in. Because sometimes we can compartmentalize in our mind that this is for hearing and doing the word. Whereas this is really applicable, at least for me as I read, for me during trials. To have this wisdom, to think through uh, this uh, idea of this proverb that James is giving uh, with his commentary. So, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This proverb is easy to understand, right? It couldn't be plainer what we're supposed to come away with and to do and know after reading that proverb. Seems really easy, and he, he gives the topic right on the surface. In light of the topic of trials, how much wisdom is wrapped up in those three phrases? When we think of trials and having joy in them and asking for wisdom from God, and uh, as even Josh was bringing up in the last couple of weeks, not being deceived as the origin of the trials or what they are to do in our lives, their purpose for us. So let's make some comments regarding this proverb, and then we're going to look at the commentary that James gives uh, in verse 20 about the proverb. This phrase is not a, if you would like to, it would be helpful for your relationships to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James, like I said in the structure, begins with an imperative. Know this. And then also another imperative, be. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. He is commanding us to have these character traits. To understand these ideas are important for us uh, in, place of, well, in the midst of trials. These three ideas, though, when I first started studying, I thought, how did these correlate together? This idea of uh, anger and quick to hear and slow to speak. I understand that when I'm angry, I'm not often those other things. I'm not quick to hear and slow to speak. I'm, I'm the opposite. But these three ideas come up in other places in Scripture as well. Uh, they seem to be correlated by uh, Solomon as uh, he is writing in Proverbs, Proverbs 10.19. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is wise. Proverbs 15:1 and 2. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. So the fool is known as one who just is blurting things out, and the, the gentle answer is coming from a wise person. Proverbs 17, 27 through 28. The intelligent person restrains his words, and the one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. I used to be read these verses as a child. 
Not sure the meaning of that. So it seems that these three ideas for James, that these ideas are linked together. The wise person who holds his tongue is the same as the person who does not get angry but keeps a cool head. So anger is, is uh, intrinsically linked to the use of our tongue and how we hold that, how we speak, how we listen. These things are um, one and the same, I think we could say. The fool is characterized by not controlling his tongue, and then that uncontrollable tongue stirring up wrath. Proverbs also links loose lips, not sinking ships, but with sure sin. Person, that was uh, Proverbs 10.19, where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. So sin being a direct result of the use, non-discerning use of our tongue, being quick to anger. So James is giving us this proverb here, very practical for us, as we look at our life in the midst of difficulties. Uh, I think Josh's definition two weeks ago on trials is spot on when he says, when he said a trial is our expectations not meeting reality. Because sometimes we have this lofty view of, I'm not in the crucible yet. I'm not in something that is horrible and I can't see a way out. So we don't think we're in a trial. But any time that we are, uh, our expectation of what we want in life, of what we expect from a job or a spouse, uh, for those who are, especially those who are newly married, you come in with a lot of expectations. And when we don't have those expectations met, and the reality is that there's problems or that there, it takes work, and whatever else the reality might be, your work, your job is going to be difficult, and you're probably going to sweat, and you're going to have to work long hours, and you're not going to make what you thought because Oregon taxes are high and state taxes are killer. And so you look at that paycheck and you see how much is taken out for insurance and how much is taken out for taxes, and you realize, I worked all week that much for that? And so your expectations quickly are shot by the reality of what uh, God is allowing to come through your life in a trial. We see this all too often. I see this all too often in my life. I plan out my morning commute to leisurely drive to work while sipping some freshly brewed and equally glorious French roast and listening to Jeff Norcross on the OPB Morning Edition. Always hear him at the same time. When all of a sudden the lady in front of you, it has to be a lady, and it has to be a lady in an oversized SUV, probably a yellow Hummer, who is of course on her cell phone, slams on her brakes, and makes you perform the greatest vehicle recovery Highway 26 has seen all week. You, of course, are following too closely, hit your brakes hard and immediately, probably out loud, gently wonder, hmm, I wonder if everyone is okay in the cars ahead of me. You throw your hand in the air so she sees your disgust and you yell, come on, learn to drive when only your windows and your seats can hear you. And just like that, that quick, my, our mind is reeling. Our heart's pumping a little faster and now, boy, do I have a story to tell the fellows at work. I think we've all been there where we are enjoying uh, an iPod sermon on the way to work or on a bike ride and somebody cuts you off or um, we get a phone call and 
course, we pull over to the side road to listen and to talk. And this story is not pleasant to us. The refrigerator has given its two weeks notice. And now that means an extra couple of weeks of overtime or whatever the case might be. And so we quickly realize that this is an opportunity for me to be angry, that God is bringing a trial. And as we learned last week and the week before, that God is the author of all good and perfect gifts. He brings these trials and how we respond to it can make it sin or it can grow to endurance because of our joy in that, seeing what God is going to do in bringing a perfect and complete work in us. So when trials come, there's a natural tendency to talk and to get angry, to not listen, to stop our ears. By our nature, we are, as Proverbs says, we are fools and we are not wise. We instinctively do the opposite of what James is writing in how he's using this proverb. We shut our ears, we grumble and complain, and we try and fix it ourselves. All the while, those responses show our anger. The quick to hear and slow to speak are evidences of our anger. They're not separate characteristics. So when we think, well, if I just do these three steps, and if I can just, when something happens, I can just hold my tongue, open my ears, and just be reasonable to listen, it's going to be okay. My anger will be dissolved. The heart of the matter here is not, well, I need to watch my tongue, or I need to Um, listen to wise counsel or listen to the whole story before reacting. Listen to the Spirit as He's moving in me. Although those are important, the heart of the matter is uh, our heart is idolatrous. And so out of that flows anger, speaking rashly, not hearing, not wanting to listen to the Spirit. So James is using this proverb here just for us to see practically uh, what he is calling the believers uh, to do. My dearly beloved brothers. He's oozing in his uh, love for them. We would say he's being sappy. He's, he's writing to these people that he loves, so he's probably never met them. And he's saying, let every person, you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. In relation to your trials in relation to what God is doing in your life. James states that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. This is his commentary. Verse 20 is the commentary for the proverb. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. The word produce there has the same root as the word in verse 2 that we see producing steadfastness in verse 3. Sorry, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James is, I think, making a correlation between, uh, you see it there in verse 2 and 3, have joy in your trial because this trial is producing steadfastness. And then here in verse 20, for your anger, opposite of joy, for your anger does not produce the righteousness God requires. What does? We've already, we've already seen that. We've already seen that it's joy uh, in these various trials, knowing they're coming and knowing the process God is using to, using to perfect us. So joy in trials produces endurance. That leads to perfection and eternal communion with God. But here anger produces the opposite. 
of God's righteousness, which is sin that leads to death. Anger kills. Joy in trials brings life, but anger and temptation kills. Remember from last week in verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The natural process of this anger in us is giving birth to death. Our evil desires bring forth sin. Sin, when it is conceived, brings forth death. Verse 20 shows us the real issue is not moral goodness that James is after, but God's righteousness. So although the proverb has in itself these moral standards or moral obligations for believers, he commands it. I want you to be. You must be this. But then his commentary states, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God that God requires. So why am I to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? You're to be those things because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness God requires. I like the ESV translation. A lot of translations are uh, God's righteousness. This is produce the righteousness God requires. I think that gets at the heart of it. God is requiring of those that verse 18 says, He has brought forth by the word of truth. God is requiring those people to live a holy and a perfect life. He is requiring those people to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. God requires perfect obedience to his commands. Anything else, we can expect to suffer the full weight of his wrath, anger, and eternal judgment. He owns us. He brought us forth by his own life by the word of truth, so he can command anything he wants from us. However, we are still fallen creatures who on our own are naturally bent to sin, as we saw last week. These are coming from our own desires. These, this does not come from God. The temptation is not from God. It is our own desires. We are still fallen creatures There was one who was born of God, who lived a sinless life, who when he was reviled, did not revile back. God wills that my sin was Jesus' death, and his death becomes my righteousness. So that in my anger, and in my being quick to speak, in my being slow to listen, God, in his glory, uses that and he takes it to the cross so that his perfect life, his sinless life, is, count, is the great exchange. It is substituted for my behalf. So I am now righteous. I am now wise. The only problem is that we are still fallen creatures with a bent to sin. We have defeated sin when we were when we died with Christ and raised to newness of life, yet we are still bent to sin in our fallen state in a fallen world. So James can write to these dearly beloved brothers, I know that you're struggling with this. You have these, 
difficulties are coming, these trials in various kinds. And so I want you to be in those trials, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because you know that the anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires of us. But we think, some of us might be tempted to think, that it's just a little anger problem, right? It's my besetting sin. Can you cut me some slack? Jesus doesn't cut any slack in Matthew 5, 21 and 22 on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Paul also doesn't cut us any slack in Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3.8 when he equates anger within a context of vices. And in Galatians he states that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is not a besetting sin that we can just... It's okay. I ask for forgiveness. Uh, I'm really, I'm really sorry that I'm, I'm lashing out like this. And sometimes anger is sneaky in that when, when we are in the car and it's only the seats and the windows that hear us, sometimes we just get so used to yelling or whatever the problem is or at work. Again, we compartmentalize our lives and at work, Nobody at work knows my family or my church family. I can compartmentalize that. And I don't have to always respond right at work. Because no one's going to think I'm a bad Christian. Maybe some people at work don't even know you're a Christian. That you love Christ. And so at work we can, we can be angry. We can have that outburst of anger. A fit of anger. And, and think it's going to be okay. Or I can apologize later and the boss will be fine. In no way am I saying that your salvation is on the line and it's do or die time. However, I am saying your salvation is on the line and it's do or die time. Does that make sense? We are secure in the God who holds us in his hand and no one can take you out. But at the same time, perseverance of the believer. We, we persevere by the Spirit who is at work in us. Practically, we don't just choose not to be angry. The fool cannot choose to be wise. So we can't just want to not be angry. We are naturally bent to that. But as believers, we, res- we must remember that our status as righteous in God's sight because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. And we must remember we have died with Christ to the power of sin so it no longer reigns over us. So we are wise, not fools because of that. As James states in one five, though, we must still ask for wisdom. We must be quick to hear when we desperately want to defend ourselves. We ask God by His Spirit to strengthen us in our position in the heavenlies and not at work. Our position in the heavenlies and not at work. We are not our position or status at work or society, 
but we are Christians. We are Christ's. So James is writing to believers, commanding them for these actions, and then stating that you must do these because your anger, your sin, is the exact opposite that God requires, the righteousness he requires. Some of you, though, might be sitting there, and this came up in my mind, so I'm imagining that other people are kind of like me and thinking this maybe, and we say, righteous anger, right? There's a verse, can't think of the reference, we never can, be angry and don't sin. What about that? He's commanding us to be angry. Anger is not, kids, close your ears, anger is, anger is not intrinsically sinful. God gets angry and God cannot sin. But Ephesians 4.26 is, is the verse, be angry and do not sin. And it's actually a quote of Psalm 4.4. 4. Psalm 4 is an, a night prayer, they say. And that quote is in the context of a list of commands for the faithful to reflect on, to be still, to be obedient, and to trust God. Those are the other commands that surround Psalm 4.4 of be angry and do not sin. So if you can do those things, be still, obedient, trust God, reflect on his faithfulness, and your anger helps you to be still and obedient and reflecting on the goodness of God, then be, ang- be angry and don't sin. For me, it can't. And I have to remember that here in this text of Ephesians 4.26, where that verse is, be angry and do not sin, that there's two commands. We look at the one, be angry. There's also the command of don't sin. They're equally weighted. If you are wanting to find a verse to tuck in your pocket to justify you when you lash out in righteous anger, then chances are your anger is sin. And you might want to take the time to repent instead of taking a verse out of context to meet your pretext. We should not, as believers, be looking for verses to justify our actions. We should be grounded in the truth, seeking to walk in the Spirit, and as this verse is saying, to produce the righteousness that God requires. And it's not anger. So, how's your anger? Really, at its core, we're not just talking about anger. So I shout at my wife, or I yell at my kids, or I yell at the lady in the yellow Hummer in front of me on 26. That's not the root problem. At its core, anger is just getting... um, Anger is idolatry. Sorry, at its core, anger is idolatry. It is just getting mad at something or someone when our expectations don't meet reality. You want your work your family, your church, to all go and be like you expect. And when they do not do that, you get angry. Our anger is our typical or natural response to our expectations not being met. Uh, Husband and wife, that's why typically, statistically, if you believe statistics, before nine years, of marriage is typically the time when couples get divorced. They don't often make it to nine years. And they say, if you can make it to nine, you can make it forever. 
but they don't make it to nine because they struggle with the expectation that they had coming into marriage not being met. It's expected to be euphoria. It is, right? Newlyweds, it is, obviously. And they're still holding hands. And so it's expected to be euphoria and everything is perfect and you live on an island and everything is wonderful and your mate never sins and your spouse always does everything that you want and you have plenty of money so you don't have to worry and you don't have to work and you just get to spend all day frolicking in the grass and it's wonderful. And then reality sets in and there's trouble and there's communication breakdown and we begin in and of ourselves, because we're idolatrous, we want our expectations to be met. We get angry. We, we think that the problem is with the other person. And we don't realize that we are idolizing ourselves and our comfort and what we expect of the other person. We are idolatrous at work. We're idolatrous of our relaxation time, of our downtime. I know this to be true from personal example. We say, I work hard, so when I come home, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this time out from the time I get home to the time I go to bed and the time that I'm asleep. That's my time. And I get to do what I want because I worked hard all day and I justify it. And so, how dare you, spouse or child, who's 11 months old, can't really understand my time yet, and how dare you phone ring and someone want a meeting or something happen and how dare you this is my time and if it's scheduled sometimes that's okay and i'm okay with you know going out a little bit later if it's scheduled but if you call up and you understand we come home and we have these expectations good because we're idolatrous and we love ourselves for me that's the root of anger I think we've heard before the root of every sin is idolatry. At the core of it is we love ourselves, we love our stuff, we love our time. And so for me, my time. Don't even think of scheduling someone coming over during Sunday, Monday, or Thursday night football. Sunday is church and there's small groups somewhere in there. I need a movie night. I need a night just to be by myself and... It's already, we're at nine days a week. So I get angry if my routine is messed up, if my commute is altered, or if my sleep is interrupted. We get angry a lot. Maybe you're just having an insight into me. We get angry a lot. And often we don't think about it because we're so used to it. We're used to making these comments to our spouse, or we're used to how we treat our child. We're used to our relationship with our boss, talking behind his back, um, sitting around with you know, the guys at work or students or your children and talking about your spouse or your boss. And we're used to this. And so for us, we don't see this as a problem. Jesus is telling us, James is telling us, anger does not produce the righteousness God requires. So why? Why should we be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Because the anger does not produce God's righteousness. What's our next question that comes up? What does produce the righteousness that God requires? 
the answer is still not in us. Just, excuse me, the answer is not in us. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, just briefly, the answer is what happened in verse 18. When we were brought forth by the word of truth, the answer is the gospel of the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by God's grace to my account. So death, anger, kills. Anger kills, but the word, the gospel, is life. Verse 21, we're moving on. Verse 21 has an imperative in it. If you have an ESV, you might think that the imperative is put away. And you might also think that the imperative is receive. However, there's only one imperative in verse 21. The verse would be more likely to read, this is another translation, not mine, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. It would be like me saying, Josh, while living in Hillsborough, you must check out the air show. The important thing that I'm telling Josh is to check out the air show, not while living in Hillsborough. He has to be in Hillsborough to check out the air show. Those two have to exist simultaneously. But I'm wanting him to do the action of go to the air show. So James here, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word. It's the receiving, right? That's the command. Receive is the imperative. And put away is a particle. Uh, It's not the main verb. And in those days of writing, and even for us today, we always put the emphasis on our main verbs. Let me state at the outset, though, before we look into this verse a little more, that what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness, is not saying you have to be sinless to receive the word. It does not say that you have to have put away all filthiness and sin to be able to receive with meekness the implanted word. So we don't have to put away our bad habits and gross sins so that we can believe in God now. And then and only then we can be saved. That idea is nowhere found in the Bible and is actually quite contradictory to the gospel. Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God proves his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He also says, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. The righteousness that God requires is nothing we can do on our own. But something here has to be done. Something must be done to us. In fact, this is what happens. We, something happens. We receive with meekness the implanted word. Verse 18, we were brought forth by the word of truth. That is salvation. This verse here in verse 21 is not speaking of our salvation, of receiving the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is wanting us, in the process of putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness or humility the already implanted word. The gospel has been implanted already. And I'm wanting you to receive it. 
seems like a contradictory contradiction. Receive that which is already implanted in me. But I think as we look at it in this context, we see that anger is not what's producing God's righteousness. So what is? Receiving with meekness the implanted word while in the process of stripping away all sin. I'm continuing to submit. I'm continuing to beg God to give me the gospel. I am continuing to preach the gospel daily because I need it. So I am passionately pursuing putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that I might receive the gospel. I might receive with meekness that implanted word over and over again. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I I keep thinking of that when we are begging God to renew the gospel, renew that message in us. So this is not moralistic commands of go home and here's three steps to not be angry. This is, brothers and sisters, be renewed in the gospel. Because in the gospel, while you are putting away these things, you the, the important is you are receiving the spirit. You are receiving the gospel over and over again, which is able to save your souls. We can pray, Spirit, strengthen me with joy in the gospel to remember the great exchange Jesus did on my behalf and use that to make me want his righteousness and not my selfish anger. That is being, is being quick to hear, slow to speak. That's humility and begging God to receive the gospel daily in contrast to our selfish anger. One commentator says on this passage that thus the God who regenerates the Christian by the word of truth in verse 18 will save him by that same word implanted in him if he receives it. The saving is not our initial salvation, but our future salvation. In the Old Testament, believers often looked forward to the great day of the Lord for their salvation. But there's always mention of the Exodus as our salvation currently. God saved us from the Exodus. He brought us out of the land of Egypt. But we look forward to, the prophets would tell them, look forward to the great day of the Lord. In the New Testament, the salvation is usually pictured as something typically looking to the end. Our future salvation. So continual humility in receiving the word will save our souls by our persevering to the end. Or as James says earlier in verse 4, being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So two questions about this verse. What does putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness mean? And secondly, what does it mean to humbly receive the implanted word? First, God demands perfection. We are not perfect, but Jesus is. Trials of our faith are there to produce endurance with joy towards perfection. But the problem is we fail over and over again and give in to temptation and choose idolatry over the gospel implanted in us. So James is saying that the humbly receiving is happening simultaneously to the putting away of sin. Let me give a different sentence. This was helpful um, earlier in talking with someone else. 
So if, if someone says to me, God says to me, this is how I wrote it, Stephen, I want you to know that every man should be a good husband, a loving father, and a faithful Christian, so that while living on this earth, you may bring me glory. The living on the earth is background to the giving me glory, but it's, as I said earlier, simultaneous at the same time. Our focus is on humbly receiving the word, but while simultaneously, passionately pursuing the ridding ourselves of sin. Sometimes we are focused on a mere acceptance. I sit in my lazy boy and I'm, it's a passive, just give it to me. I'm receiving, I'm here, I'm receiving. But we forget that the wide receiver to get open to receive the ball has to do a lot of zigzagging and running routes. It's not a lazy boy put it on the TV tray for me. You are begging God to work the gospel in you over and over again through sweet communion with the Spirit in His Word and prayer while simultaneously doing, purging your life of sin so that your receiving is hearing and doing the Word. For me, that's how Paul, James, sorry, is transitioning in this text from one topic of trials to the bigger topic, I think, which consumes the book of doing and hearing the word. He begins with anger that we often, that's just a natural response. Our natural response is anger in trials. So he begins with that and then transitions into, but that doesn't produce anything. But what does is hearing and doing the word, receiving with humility, meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James goes on, verse 22. We're not going to look at it, but this is a teaser for next week. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The same deception that we saw earlier. We deceive ourselves when we stop at verse 19 and we think that we only need to do these three things and we're a good Christian. But not only do we need to know, but we need to humbly receive the word which is able to save us. So how do you view the gospel is the question. It's not about anger, which is the surface topic. How do you view the gospel? Because right now, our idolatry is probably running rampant. Do you know the gospel? Maybe someone here don't know or the word has, is not implanted in you already. And that's the first step. Going back to verse 18 of being brought to newness of life or being brought forth by the word of truth. If you do know the gospel, do you see it as merely that which got me saved and now I'm on my own and I need self-help books? Or what role does the gospel of Christ's death substituted for your sins play in your relationships today. The way you treat your boss or your wife could show evidence to believers, to people you work with, that you deny the resurrection. You treat your spouse, you treat your boss as though Christ has not been raised and his death is in vain 
and you are living for yourself. I was saved, but now it's on my own. Your anger is producing death, and God is passionately, through James, calling you to rid yourself of filthiness and rampant wickedness and to receive him, to receive the gospel over and over again because that will be able to save your souls. So I think this is a beautiful ending that James gives in wrapping up the topic of trials. Count it all joy. and Don't be angry, but receive. Hear the word and do it. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I hope in this was, was not helpful tips, uh, but I hope that God by his spirit uh, is drawing us to see our life as it is riddled with trials, as we are filled with these testings of our faith, that our response is to draw near to God, the one who brings the trial of our faith, instead of seeking our idolatry in ourselves. So let's pray and ask God to do just that this week as we go. God, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you, Spirit, for you being the agent who opened our eyes to the gospel. You being the one God used to open the eyes of our, the understanding of our heart to believe, to give us faith. So we pray, we believe, but help our unbelief continue to foster that. Remind us of the gospel. Give us a passionate desire that while ridding ourselves of sin, we are desperate and begging for the gospel that we might humbly receive it. Receive it that we might do it and to your glory because of your grace. Nothing in us. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your work on the cross on our behalf. For your constant intercession on our behalf. That your righteousness is our righteousness. Allow that to impact us. Allow that to be our sole satisfaction. That we don't feed our idolatry. We don't feed the anger that is our natural tendency and our bent. But we are feeding, we are fostering and caring for the relationship we have with you. So we thank you for your word from James, inscripturated for us today. We pray this to your glorious grace. You work in us. Amen.